Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Observe that closet, Cousin Elizabeth. What do you say to that? Is it not the very essence of practicality and excellence? Lizzie smirks with a teasing condescension. Selves in a closet. Happy thought indeed. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. Uh, we have been exploring the themes in my book, Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. And this week we reach... Um, what I like to think might be one of my most infamous chapters, uh, which I had so much fun writing, um, which is Be Like Mr. Collins. And today to discuss um, the merits and drawbacks of Mr. Collins and how Jane Austen might give us wisdom about living life well, I have my lovely friend Haley Stewart to chat with me. Welcome, Haley. Thanks so much. Excited to be here. I always look forward to doing podcasts together because I feel like we always end up spending the first like 15 minutes just updating each other on life. And we have both been kind of, um, we have both had need to be aggressively happy for the last few weeks, <laughs> <laughs> haven't we? Yes. So I think you got hit with COVID first, then me <laughs> and my family. And so it's been a rocky start to 2022, but we're we're getting there. We're getting there. I like to think that I was just sandbagging 2022, you know, like you just, you want to start off with low expectations so it can only go uphill from here, which is also, and I've always thought that phrase, it could only go uphill is a weird phrase because it, I think it's meaning, you know, like you're at a low point, you can get higher, but it also just sounds going uphill sounds harder. So it's kind of a catch right. too, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it would almost be, it's all downhill from here, meaning it's all easier but instead it means you're like going to rock bottom. Yeah, exactly. It's all downhill from here. So really, I think metaphors of ascending or descending kind of aren't usually encouraging. <clears throat> but whichever <laughs> way we look, um, we, we have um, started off the year in an interesting spot, uh, but we are both, it seems like, on the up and up. Maybe that's a better phrase. Um, and the reason I um, wanted to discuss this chapter with you is because you have a book coming out about Jane Austen herself. So tell us a little bit about your book. Sure. So my book's coming out in March. It's called Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life on Love, Friendship, and Becoming the Person God Created You to Be. So I'm kind of looking at Austen's novels with um, the lens of kind of virtue theory through, through the virtues and what she can teach us about living a good life and not changing who we are in order to fit into a narrow box, but to develop virtue so that we can fully be alive to the person that God wants us to be. So it was like the most fun writing project of all time because I just got to reread all of Austin's novels and think about my favorite characters. So each chapter follows one character's um, cultivation of a virtue, like kind of coming out of vice into virtue. Mm -hmm. So for Emma Woodhouse, she's coming out of selfishness and understanding compassion. Mm -hmm. And 
um, Frederick Wentworth is coming out of bitterness and learning about patient endurance and fortitude. And so it was just, it was a blast. Mm, I can't wait to read it. I mean, honestly, that sounds like so much fun to write and, and for all of us to get to read. And that's, I think one of the things I love best about Jane Austen is I think people misunderstand her when they think of her as a, as a person who just has villains and heroes, because Mm -hmm. there, there are certainly hateable people in, in Jane Austen. But I think one of the things that makes her so remarkable is her insight into human nature. And humans, because we're made in the image of God and have consciences, and we're usually never totally good or totally bad. We are who we are with a great potential to grow and to love and to be kind, but also a great potential to um, to be vicious in the in the actual sense of the word, to give in to our vices. And, and so there's something in every Jane Austen character that could be a virtue, that could be cultivated in something good. And, and I think that's even true of the exceptional uh, character of Mr. Collins in Pride <laughs> of Prejudice, which is one of my drums that I love to beat. Um, and, and it makes people mad. Um, I, uh, I told Haley before we started recording this that um, my friend Michael Ward who's uh, the Lewis scholar, uh, said to me after I explained this chapter to him that I was perverse but correct. Um, and uh, <laughs> and so um, in this chapter, I look to Mr. Collins as, I think of, you know, you, you were talking about the virtues. And when I was talking with a friend about this chapter, you know, in, in traditional theology, you have kind of the cardinal virtues and theological virtues. And the theological virtues are... Um, faith, hope, and charity, faith, hope, and love. Um, but then you have kind of the Greek virtues that you'd find in Aristotle, which is, uh, help me, um, I get this wrong, prudence, justice. Temperance. Yes, I think temperance. we went there. Yeah, temperance, mm-hmm. opposite directions. But temperance, justice, right? Justice. Fortitude. Fortitude and um, prudence. And prudence. Um, and, and those are, in, like, Aquinas would describe those often as kind of like, the worldly virtues which you might have whether or not you were a Christian. And um, this might be ironic considering he is a clergyman, but I think that in many ways uh, Mr. Collins sometimes demonstrates the worldly virtues. He is a man who's figured out how to maneuver the world pretty well, despite the fact that he's like not the most uh, charming or capable person. Um, <laughs> so... I, I wrote this chapter, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek because I enjoy how frustrated it makes people, but also because I do think there's something to learn from Mr. Collins. But I've said all that. Haley, what are your feelings about Mr. Collins? Okay, so I think that Mr. Collins is incredibly odious. <laughs> I can't stand him. However, you're absolutely right that he's not a villain villain by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. You know, I think that if you read an author like Charles Dickens, you know, his, his villains are just, they're horrible. They love being horrible. They like seeing other people suffer. And then some of his protagonists are just so saccharine, you know, they just are so good. And and you don't know how they got so good under their circumstances, but they're just perfect. And here they are. And Austin really never, ever does that. I think Mrs. Norris in Mansfield Park is one Mm. of the very few villains where you really can't see any any virtues in her and everyone else you can relate to them on some Mm. level even um 
even sometimes, you know, the rake of the story, like Wickham or Willoughby, in some ways they're a villain, but also they're very human and you can kind of understand where they, how they got there and, and how they have potential to be something better than they are, if only. Hmm. And so I think with Mr. Collins, he's definitely not a villain, but he's so slimy, Joy. <laughs> he's just the slimiest, greasiest, <laughs> please. Oh, okay. Well, I guess we should tell people who haven't read Pride and Prejudice or haven't seen the only good adaptation, uh, 1995 BBC starring Jennifer. Is it Jennifer Ely or Jennifer, Jennifer, I, Jennifer L? I've always heard L, but I could be wrong. Okay. But I've always heard it that way. And the inevitable Colin Firth. Uh, we should explain who Mr. Collins is. So, of course, the plot of Pride and Prejudice is about a um, a family. Uh, there are five daughters, and of course, women could not inherit um, based on various laws at that point. And so, the father basically their their estate will be entailed away from them when the father dies. So, there's always kind of this looming sense that the father is going to die because all people die. It's very memento mori. Um, and, uh, and so there's a great anxiety to marry off all of these daughters so that they do not become destitute. And um, the person, the next of kin to whom this, uh, this estate will be entailed is Mr. Collins, who is a, um, who is a, a clergyman. And he, uh, the way we're introduced to him in the story is that he comes to visit because back in those days, you could marry your cousin. Um, is he their first cousin or their second cousin? I can't remember. Mm, I can't remember that either. They I, just, I, they always call him our cousin, Mr. Collins. And so yeah. I can't remember how his father was related to... I think maybe his father was Mr. Bennett's cousin. Yeah, so they're not first cousins, so it's slightly less weird. Um, but that was, you know, kind of the norm. So he goes to visit the Bennetts um, with an eye to marrying one of them so that the estate won't be entailed, entailed away from the family, right? Um, but that tells us who Mr. Uh, Mr. Collins is, but what does Mr. Collins do? How is he received, Haley? <laughs> yes, he's received with humor. It seems that different characters in the family, particularly Elizabeth and Mr. Bennett, her father, um, are kind of smirking the whole time, finding mm. his conversation and manner humorous in a um, kind of mocking way. And mm. then Mrs. Bennett is very hopeful that he's the answer to the family's problems and that he's going to marry one of the daughters and this will save them. Um, but he also, it, his, there's this great scene at the dinner table mm. where his kind of manner and character is brought to the forefront in a comical way where he's very excited about boiled potatoes mm. and he's very obsessed with his patroness, Lady <laughs> Catherine de Bourgh, um, who is one of his parishioners. And um, so he's in, in some ways you write about in your chapter how he's very, happy with simple things like boiled potatoes just make his night he's so thrilled um but I think there's also a boastfulness to Mr. Collins that speaks to some lack of self-awareness and some pride 
Hmm. So there's some things to admire about him. He's, he's very, has a lot of gratitude. He's um, content. But there's also some other things going on. Yeah. Oh, certainly. I think his, his greatest weakness is his um, lack of self-awareness. But in his greatest, I think I would say his greatest fault is his pride. Um, <clears throat> which he is able to inculcate because he is so not self-aware. Um, so my reason for it now, now we can proceed pretending that everyone knows everything about, uh, Jane Austen and, uh, <laughs> we'll be forming various opinions. So my pitch is that I think that Mr. Collins has various virtues, not that he is entirely virtuous, but that he has some ways of living in the world that we could learn from. Um, part of this is just, I always feel like the hatred of Mr. Collins is disproportionate to the actual damage he inflicts. So like when you think about Pride and Prejudice, there are people who are like genuinely uh, like I actually think that Mr. Bennett is one of the most selfish, least virtuous characters. Um, we act like Mrs. Bennett is weird and crazy and, you know, and and she is and she, you know, has her nerves. But like if I had five daughters and I thought that my husband might die sometime in the next five years and that we would be left destitute um, without a house, I also would be kind of anxious. And actually, it's a mm -hmm. sign of Mr. Bennett's lack of prudence and lack of, of care for his family, and in some ways his coldness towards his wife, that he hasn't thought this through. Um, and so it's funny to me when you think about someone like Mr. Bennett, who we all kind of mostly have like warmish feelings towards, when you think about the damage that his, his vices play, compared to Mr. To like who who does Mr. Collins actually harm in the story? Right. Does he harm anyone right. in the story? I think, I think he, you could say he harms people's feelings with um, some of the letter he writes after one of the daughters elopes with mm -hmm. a rake. He writes this horrible letter. So I think you could say he maybe wounds feelings, but his behavior isn't affecting the future of the family in the way that Mr. Bennett, I think you're completely right about Mr. Bennett, that he simply can't be bothered to figure out a plan for his wife and daughters. I mean, it's really hard to wrap your mind around, but it's, I think he just kind of didn't plan. And then he feels like, well, too late now, I'm just going to go read in my library and, and mock my my poor anxiety ridden wife. Okay, yeah, it's, it's which really, is actually it's a problem. But well, it's actually kind of a form of cruelty not to pick on. Mm -hmm. I think to not to like create a situation in which six human beings might be destitute because of you, and then be like, meh. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, and you know, Mr. Collins with his with his terrible letter, it is terrible. But then when you think about that time period, like, um he's thinking about the rest of the family and like if the rest of the women are rendered i'm not saying that we should you know shame 15 year olds who are seduced by rakes but um in that time period it would have been all of the daughters would have been rendered unmarriageable and then the situation would have been like i think maybe we lose a little sense of the stakes of mm -hmm. culturally what things meant i think at that time Right. So and with, that. you know, his his issue, some of his issue is lack of self-awareness. Mm -hmm. But the lack of self-awareness that Lydia, the the daughter mm -hmm. who runs off with the rake, 
the lack of self-awareness that she has is so much worse. The consequences of it Mm. are so much worse. And it's so infuriating Mm. later in the story where she still has no concept of how she's hurt her family. I mean, she still doesn't get it even at the end. Yeah. Well, which, you know, when we're all 15, and I think maybe that's part of the the tragedy. The thing is, Jane Austen is always dealing with these very heavy things in a light way. Um, You know, they're they're always uh, comedies that, are almost tragedies, you know, and when you think she's 15, mm-hmm. so she doesn't really know, um, what, what's hitting her, but, um, yeah, so I guess my pitch is, I just don't think that Mr. Collins deserves the, like, when people talk about who they hate in the films, they talk about, like, Wickham, right? Mm-hmm. And then they talk about Mr. Collins, and I'm just like, they're, objectively, Mr. Collins doesn't deserve the hate, I feel. Like, he's just fun to laugh at, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, and he's not even like a Uriah... Sorry, here I am just rant, ranting about Mr. Collins. He's not even like a Uriah Heap where, like, everyone laughs at him and he knows it and he secretly resents them and he's plotting against them and he's going to hurt all of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's he lacks the self-awareness to know that people laugh at him. And so he... he he's just a source of joy for everyone else really because at the end of the day he doesn't get in their way and Mm -hmm. um yeah i think there's glimmers of something that's positive which is lack of Mm self-consciousness and you don't want to be self-conscious you do want to be self-aware so you Mm -hmm. know if you're hurting someone or upsetting them or looking like a complete fool but there's also something very positive about not being self-conscious where you're mm-hmm. not constantly obsessed with how you're coming across or what people in the room are thinking of you and I don't think Mr. Collins is quite there to be to lack self-consciousness in the way that would be best for us to do mm-hmm. but there's some glimmers of that it's good wouldn't it be better to not be aware when people are laughing at you than if people are um and I think that it's also clear from Elizabeth Bennett's response to him. You know, she isn't a perfect character. We watch her her arc of developing humility during the book. But she's, even though she finds him irksome, she's happy to go to a visit at his house to see mm-hmm. her friend Charlotte. And it's not just intolerable to be mm-hmm. around him. You know, she kind of gets a kick out of him sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's okay. You know, he's annoying. He makes a few little jabs that she finds irritating. But mostly, it's not horrible. Yeah. Well, and, um, yeah. Well, and I mean, at the end of the day, I think Mr. Collins, like, the moment where we feel like he has his pride hurt is you can see that he's kind of like, Elizabeth, I had a lot to offer you. You know what I mean? And And you turned it down. How could you? Um, but, but he kind of like, you know, gets that out of his system and then he goes and keeps his bees, you know? And, um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, so he's an interesting, yeah, he's an interesting character. And I think that is a good, um, a good thing you put your finger on, which is what's the balance between self-awareness and self-consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. being, because I think that is kind of the, the twin thing that's happening with him, right? He's, he is unself-aware, which is what makes him so amusing and laughable and absolutely infuriating at times but he also isn't overly self-conscious and so that allows him a kind of humility 
And I know that may sound funny because his, his vice is also pride, but it allows him to kind of not care at the end of the day because he kind of gets his, he gets what he wants and he enjoys his little life that he has. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think that that is, and that's why I say he's a he's the worldly virtues. I think that getting the life that he has, in some ways he doesn't desire more heavenly virtues, right? He doesn't get to display uh, charity or or hope or faith in the same way because he's kind of focused on just making his earthly conditions happy. Um, and that's, that's a failure. I think that's really the main failure to me about Mr. Collins is he just only kind of thinks about comfort and ease. Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of lives on this one plane yeah. and he doesn't, he's ambitious only on that plane. He doesn't seem to have ambitions for kind of a higher self. Mm. Um, but I think, also what you were talking about his his little jabs at Elizabeth to kind of show her here's what you are missing out on I mean that's so relatable mm-hmm. if someone rejects us of course we would like them to see what they're missing out on and oh we would love for them to be thinking if only I had said yes to Mr. <laughs> Collins you know but on the other hand he doesn't have ill will towards her he doesn't mm-hmm. wish her ill or hope that the family falls into ruin, nothing like that. In fact, I'm sure once he gets over Lady Catherine's displeasure at Elizabeth's <laughs> marriage at the end, I think he's probably going to be happy for her, you know, wish good things for her. And so the, even those flaws are, I think, relatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, relatable and and in some ways... I actually think it's a pretty big deal to be rejected by someone um, and be able to get over it to some extent and be kind and or just be normal. Like not even be like, I don't even think Mr. Collins is super like virtuous about it. He's not like, I'm going to be the bigger person. You know, he just kind of like <laughs> does his little jabs and he carries on with his life. Okay, so. I, I think what we should do is talk about a few of the virtues. We've already kind of been doing this, but um, that we can glean from Mr. Collins' life and then talk about what it looks like to develop um, more heavenly virtues, as it were. So three mm-hmm. of the things I talked about um, that I admire in Mr. Collins is an enjoyment of little things, um, quiet ambitions, or the ambi- like a kind of appropriate ambition, and um, and then the ability to take losses, basically. So, Haley, both in Mr. Collins' life and in your own life, uh, what do you think the role of enjoying little things plays in an aggressively happy life? Mm-hmm. I think that that really is key because we've all known people or experienced seasons in our own lives where someone just can't be content you know, and we realize, you know, you, we all have that friend who comes to us and vents about things going on in their life. And at one point we realize, oh, no, it doesn't matter where they live or what their relationship status is or they're they're not going to be content. They're not letting themselves mm-hmm. be content or, or have gratitude for the good things where they are. They're, they don't even see them. They don't see the good things. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad. Um And so I think often we get in this place where we think, well, I can only be happy if 
I get to make this move or I get to have this particular job or, you know, we kind of make up these fantasies in our mind um, when in reality, life is life wherever we are. It, life is still going to feel very much the same, even if we get those things finally that we think are going to be the one thing that make us happy. Just thinking about my own life, my family sold our house in Florida when I had, let's see, our oldest three were two, three, and five. And we moved to Texas and lived in this teeny tiny 650 square foot apartment on a farm to do a year long agricultural internship. And we had no flushing toilets because it was a no-flush farm. It was like very primitive living. And now we live in a house where we have a bathroom with a flushing toilet, and it's so luxurious. But also, life isn't really that much different than it was when we didn't have a flushing toilet. You know, so I think we make up in our minds things that we need that maybe aren't really what we need. And it's so important to develop that virtue of contentment, which Mm -hmm. stems from gratitude, and letting ourselves be pleased with these little things instead of telling ourselves a lie that we'll only be happy if. Yes, I so agree with that. And I I guess I just, I think, um, you know, uh, we had Christmas about a month ago and I was with my nieces and nephews. And I think on the whole, uh, children are tend to be happier than adults. Like they may go through up and ups and downs, but there's kind of an existential happiness when you're at a child that we all kind of long to back to. And I think part of that comes from, I was thinking about like watching my nieces and nephews and that like at Christmas you give them all these gifts and everything, but kids are like happy with the, the wrapping paper. Do you know what I mean? Like there's like, there's this, (laughs) there's this immense amount of enjoyment that's derived from smaller things. And I think when you take the the stakes of what I need to make me happy from vast, huge things down to smaller things, it creates this sense that actually everything we have is a gift and, Mm -hmm. um, and it makes it easier to be happy. If you say I can be happy because I have a cup of coffee this morning, than if you say I can be happy when I have a job that pays me this much and all those things. And Mm -hmm. that's not to deny the, the real, vast things that we want and need and the desires we have but that kind of practicing gratitude makes you able to be a person who is happy with much and with little and with great things you know mm-hmm. no that's so true it's funny with my own kids sometimes they'll say this was the best day ever <laughs> and I'll say oh why why was it the best day ever <laughs> you're talking about it's like it's the best day of your life and they're like because we got to have ice cream after dinner and then we watched a movie all together and ate popcorn and it was the best day ever and they really mean it like it sounds yeah. so silly but they really meant like I can't <clears throat> imagine a day being better than this day because they are content with these simpler things they don't have mm-hmm. aspirations to something bigger than ice cream and popcorn and a movie <laughs> yes and that is a, those things are great uh, great catalysts for joy and happiness and we see this in mr collins life um <laughs> through the through his enjoyment of shelves in a closet uh, the fact that he can derive that much pleasure from a simple little thing which Having just gotten back and kind of rearranging my flat, I am I am like, there is a lot of joy out of just making your kind of domestic space happy. Um, 
but yes, so I think that is one of the virtues Mr. Collins demonstrates. Um, the next thing I talked about and that we could chat about is um, on the flip side of that, um, allowing yourself to have ambitions but not be controlled by ambitions. Um, Haley, have you ever taken the Pottermore quiz? I haven't. I haven't taken it. I, I really want to know what you're And I'm not it. sure what I would be. I would not be a Gryffindor. Yeah. I 100% would not be a Gryffindor. So I, I can rule that out. Um, I can see myself being a Ravenclaw. Mm. I can even see myself being a Slytherin. I can also see um, you being a Hufflepuff. And so I, I just need to take the quiz because who you knows do. what I am. I can only rule out Gryffindor because I'm not very brave. So <laughs> I know that. Well, um, I took it and I've taken it actually several times and I've come out as a Slytherin twice and a Gryffindor once. And um, I even came out, I did the Patronus thing and I came out as a black Mamba, which it was, mm. it was like, you're a Slytherin, you're really a Slytherin. And of <laughs> course, you know, aside from being evil, the thing that Slytherins are is ambitious. And um, I think that's kind of a strange word, right? Because... I associate ambition and with with kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about, right? With like an endless hunger, a I won't be happy until I'm on the top, I'm the best, I have the most, I'm, you know, I've achieved all these things. Um, and I think that's a real danger. Um, but I think there's also a sense that in life, if we want to make a good life, we have to have kind of a fire in our bellies to want to make a good life. And that involves some kind of ambition. Um, and, you know, in uh, Mr. Collins's case, he has the ambition to marry the prettiest and the smartest Bennett girl. And that's just not in the cards, you know? Um, it's just, it's never going to happen. Um, but there's a sense that wanting good things out of life is not a bad thing. And actually that in some ways, if we have good ambitions that uh, will bring, that will be life-giving to ourselves and other people, that it's actually, I think, kind of a virtuous thing to cultivate, but to think about what are my ambitions and how do I let those give me direction, but not rule over me or allow me to crush other people. What do you think about ambition, Healy? Mm. Yeah, I think those are really good thoughts. As, as you were talking, I was thinking about how a lot of Austin's characters at one point or another, something happens that lights a fire under them. They get this ambition to become better people. So for you know Emma Woodhouse and Emma, there's this moment where her dear friend, Mr. Knightley really reads her the riot act and tells her you, she really behaved badly and she was being really hurtful to someone and she needs to know the truth. And that is the catalyst for her deciding, I want to be a better person. I don't want to act like that. I don't want to be someone who hurts people. And so she has this ambition to grow. And I think that's the case for Mr. Darcy, since we're talking about Pride and Prejudice. When Elizabeth rejects him, that really gives him this ambition to develop humility, to be honest with himself about his flaws, to grow out of that. And so I think that if we look at ambition, not just for, you know, Mr. Collins, maybe his flaws, that he stops at 
earthly ambitions at, at comfort and pleasure and if that ambition could just light a fire under him to develop some self-awareness and <laughs> humility and a that you know mm-hmm. he could have a chance to really be a kind person and a mm. a person who is going to really minister to his parish and you know mm. the things that he really doesn't do <laughs> and so i think that that's where his flaw is is he just yeah. he kind of gives up at this superficial level where he well, could have the opportunity to rise well and that strikes me as you're saying that it's a difference between external and internal ambitions right like our ambitions to get to achieve to be recognized and really those are things we can't really control on some level you know we can try to be the best or the smartest but we can't guarantee how people will react to us um whereas the ambition you're describing is the ambition to be good to be virtuous and that's something that we do we don't have control over but we have we have agency we can grow and become better and and that's a kind of good thing so i think something that i am prompted to think when i look at austin is what I think we all kind of have ambitions on some level. Um, so to to think about what what is it that what are my ambitions and are are they aimed towards um, towards virtue or towards selfishness and are they things that will bring life to me and others or are they not? Um, mm-hmm. So the final thing Mr. Collins does, and then I want to hear about your prescriptions or maybe your just commentary on some of Pride and Prejudice more general generally. Final thing I talk about with Mr. Collins is that I actually think he does something pretty well, which is difficult for us, which is that he he does take uh, he doesn't take rejection well the first time. Also, I think it's interesting <laughs> to explore the parallels between Mr. Darcy's first failed attempt at um, about at proposing to Lizzie and Mr. Collins's, because like on the whole, they're like. Is Mr. Collins is more successful in some ways than Darcy's? You know what I mean? Like, is it less cruel? <laughs> he's, it's pretty bad. Like, that's his low point, right? Is when he can't take no for no, which is because he's so not self-aware. But, um, but, but Mr. Collins is rejected, and ultimately he kind of, eventually he comes to a place of being kind and and just normal with Lizzie. And on just like a human, this is my most, uh, if you want to call it this way, secular chapter like on a human level learning how to take rejection take your losses figure out how to be okay when things don't go your way when you're not the prettiest girl at the party um is a pretty important part of life um and it's one that i think we don't talk about i think it's really funny people always say you know the greatest test of your character is success and i think in an extreme case that's true right like if you get to be elected president in the United States, that's true. But like, I actually think most of us just kind of muddle along. Like most of us aren't the New York Times bestseller. Most of us don't, you know, um, get everything we want. And so for most of us, the more consistent test of our character will be, how do we handle rejection? How do we handle criticism? How do we handle not getting the job that we wanted? How do we handle our friends succeeding when we don't? Um, And I think I think that's a really hard thing, but also a really necessary thing if you want to live well, because if you're constantly threatened by, if your whole sense of self is always called into question every time you experience rejection or loss, I just think of this being in academia. It's just like, 
an incredibly mortifying thing all the time because <laughs> there's like so few jobs you apply for a million of them you and you just kind of have to have this attitude of um you have to be kind of persistent and willing to take losses and not think that it ultimately means something about you so i don't know mm-hmm. this is not an easy thing how do how do you think about um taking your losses and being willing that not all of us are mr darcy and that's okay <clears throat> mm-hmm. Well, I think part of it is developing the humility to know that, you know, you, you matter and you're mm-hmm. beloved, but you're also the sort of creature who fails sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's not to be unexpected. Mm-hmm. You know, that I think that a lot of times, especially in the spiritual life, we struggle when we mess up mm-hmm. because we've convinced ourselves that we don't do that sort of thing. That we're that that sort of creature that could just be perfect. Right. And so when we embrace that, that's not the sort of creature we are. We're the sort of creature that's flawed and makes mistakes and we'll have to start again and get you pick ourselves back up and start climbing again, that then it's a lot less um, painful Mm. when we fail because we're we're expecting it. That's going to happen now and again. And when we don't expect that, then it completely throws us for a loop mm-hmm. because we've convinced ourselves that this isn't who we are and it calls into question our whole identity and everything about us. And so to, to be okay with being a human flawed creature that messes up yeah, and, and to expect that now and again doesn't mean that we just give up. Mm-hmm. But it means that when it happens, it doesn't take so long to pick ourselves back up because we're not going through that identity crisis every single time. Mm-hmm. Something is just dis- we disappoint ourselves. But I think I think a lot of people do. Like I think I think that's certainly something. And I think oddly that perspective of um, having an identity crisis every time you fail is is kind of rooted in pride because it's the idea that like. I actually am capable of being perfect, and so if I'm not capable of being perfect, then it's because I didn't in my complete self-control manage everything. Um, but that's mm-hmm. just, that's actually not what humans are. We need grace, we need dependency, we need all those things. And so, you know, resting in on it. But I think also for me, part of it has been realizing that sometimes it's not because you failed. Like sometimes someone won't love you and it's not because you're not lovable or because they're broken or it's just cause that's life. And, mm-hmm. but but I think the ability to take those knocks kind of comes with the sense of I'm beloved, no matter what happens, God thinks I'm pretty neat and like uh, that I'm worth dying for, that I'm worth reaching out to over and over again. And so, so nothing that old, that I lose or that I mess up on or that I don't win ultimately knocks me off the horse. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Which is a, easier thing said than done. Um, I wonder, I don't know if you experienced this too, Joy, but just being someone who has written online and mm-hmm. had an online presence on social media over the past 10 years or so, um, I feel like that is something you have to come to terms with or you just can't be on social media or write <laughs> online. You have to like come to the point where you go, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You yeah. know, <laughs> I, everyone isn't my cup of tea. And mm-hmm. so that's all right. Not everybody has to like me or really understand what I'm getting at here. 
but some do, and that's kind of, that's my little group who were kindred spirits, and it's just, it's not everybody, and some people won't like me, and it's okay, you know, yeah. it's not, it might not be any kind of failing on their part, I'm mm-hmm. just not their cup of tea. Or on your part, yeah, exactly, um, no, definitely, I def- you definitely have to come to that place, but it's kind of a good place to come to, because then you can just be like, neat, I really like boiled potatoes and shelves and closets, and I'm okay. <laughs> Sorry, that's dive back into Mr. Collins. But no, I think learning how to take your losses to realize people won't like you sometimes, and that sometimes that's because you fail, but sometimes it's just because that's life. Um, I think kind of getting over that desire to fall apart and think everything is wrong every time anything goes wrong is it takes a long time, but it's also such a relief when it's kind of when you don't carry it anymore in your soul. <laughs> And I wonder how much of our academic life, you know, even if someone doesn't pursue a PhD like you, they've been in high school, maybe college, and, and it's you're very much in control mm. of, you know, the effort you put in and the the resources that you put together to, to work hard, then you get this grade. But then life isn't like that. You might put all the effort in and be doing a great job and turn in a great essay of living mm-hmm. life. And it just doesn't, it doesn't turn out the way that, you know, the effort that you put in is not rewarded as it should have been. And so I think it's hard to transition out of that as well, mm-hmm. out of that mindset for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And I think all of us are looking for someone to put a stamp on our forehead and say, whether it's because of that or just because of being we all want to be named and chosen and seen. We're all waiting for somebody to put us like a gold star and be like, you're okay. And the older mm-hmm. you get in life, the less, the less like clear opportunities there are for someone to do that. <laughs> you just need a, an esteemed patroness. Yeah, it's so you know, true. That's what you need is that's, a Lady Catherine de Burgh to say, yeah, you know, this exactly. is my, yeah. this is my clergyman. Yeah. He, he gets exactly. to come to Rosings Park. <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Collins, you know, he has he has the gold star. What more is there to want, really? Um, okay, so as we're winding down, we've we've seen some things that Mr. Collins is good at. He's good at being ambitious, but not letting him get it down. He's good at being thankful for little things. Um, but uh, and and he's good at taking his losses to some extent. But there are there are higher virtues to to reach for and true happiness is found not in mere comfort but also in in virtue of soul and the strength that it takes to be happy inside so if you could advise the good clergyman how he might grow in true happiness and in true virtue what would you say to him Haley I think the best thing that he could do is learn to think about Charlotte more than he thinks about himself. So he is very lucky in his marriage. He gets to marry a very reasonable, kind, lovely young woman. And she does find him slightly odious. She would prefer that he stays in the garden and that she can go sit in her own sitting room and spend not any time with him. Um, And so I think that his flaw of lack of self-awareness is partly not being quite aware of what other people around him need, how he could Mm. sacrifice his happiness for theirs, because the only person he's really successful at 
pleasing as Lady Catherine de Bourgh because she likes it when people grovel. And, you know, that's she thinks that's delightful. And so I think that that self-awareness requires compassion and empathy, you know, being able to to see what Charlotte would feel like and mm-hmm. what would make her happy. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is what I would advise him to do is to focus on that one relationship and try to make Charlotte as, as happy as she could possibly be. Um, and hopefully that doesn't cause him to spend extra time and attention on her that she doesn't actually want. <laughs> but I think that that could, that could help. Um, that, that turning towards others above his own comfort, I think it would be the next step in some mm-hmm. growth for Mr. Collins. I think Mr. Collins needs to pay particular attention when this verse comes into lectionary. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He has quite a bit of both of those things. But in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So I think that's what Mr. Collins should look to, don't you, Haley? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you've got it. We've got great advice from Mr. Collins now. We do. We absolutely do. Um, and, and gosh, I would let Charlotte come visit me anytime she needed to because, you know. <laughs> um, Haley, it's been so much fun to talk with you about this. Where can people pre-order your book should they like a copy of your excellent and delightful? Sure. They can pre-order at Amazon. They can pre-order at my publisher, Ave Maria Press. So you can go to Ave Maria's website and order there or on Amazon. It should come out March 25th, barring any delays from paper supply chain issues. What a time um, to be alive. But yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm excited to get it into people's hands, like there to be an actual copy out in the world. It'd be so good. Oh, and where can people find you on the internet more generally? Sure. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Haley Carrot, so H-A-L-E-Y Carrot, um, partly because of Anne of Green Gables and partly because of other things. And um, yeah, that's probably the best place to find me. I also co-host a podcast with my friend Christy Isinger called Fountains of Carrots. And <laughs> yeah, be looking out for Jane Austen's Genius Guide to Life. Well, thank you so much for joining me and thank you everyone else for listening. I hope that you have a wonderful day and that you, whether it is shelves in closets or boiled potatoes or tiny scones, that you delight and enjoy your day as much as Mr. Collins enjoys boiled potatoes. I hope you enjoyed this week's Aggressively Happy episodes. Don't forget to tune in next week and to pre-order your copy of Aggressively Happy, A Realist Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life, which you can find wherever books are sold. Have a lovely week, and remember to rejoice though you have considered all the facts.